0: to uh, St. James Glen Carbon, the Christmas Eve uh, service. Uh, we've run out of bulletins. If you have your uh, phone on you, uh, stjameslincarbon.org slash bulletins. And if you're uh, desperate to look at a bulletin, uh, you can find it there. At the end of the service, we are going to sing uh, Silent Night. But before we sing Silent Night, we're going to sing Joy to the World. During Joy to the World, a couple guys are going to come down the center aisle and light your candles, and if, when, when they do that, if you could pass that flame on to the person next to you, and then if we could figure out a way to jump it across this aisle over here. And so when we sing uh, Silent Night at the end, we'll all be singing with the candlelight, we'll turn the lights off. Um, tomorrow morning, uh, Christmas Day service at 9 o'clock, and then Sunday morning services are normal. Uh, so let's go ahead and begin, and let's start by standing and singing the first hymn, O Come All You Faithful. continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray and ask God to forgive our sins. O almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Hear the gospel of Christ from Matthew chapter 1. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Amen. You may be seated. Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 9. This is written 600 years before uh, the birth of Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tonight, the um, birth of Jesus story from Luke 2 is going to be read by guest reader, Jensen.
1: In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all the and all went to be registered each to his own town. and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he w- because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and while there were there the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Then the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I
0: Jensen. Please stand with me now. Let's confess our Christian faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Luke 2 story that Jensen read for us, which of course is, uh, I mean, if you've grown up in church or been around church, you're really familiar with the Luke 2 uh, narrative of Jesus being born. It's, uh, it's uh, so commonplace, of course, now I don't, commonplace is probably the wrong word. Uh, it's got a certain Christmassy vibe to it now that it's easy to not feel uh, the hopelessness that's kind of embedded in the story and that, that Luke really wants you to feel and sense like how broken the whole situation is. And it, it's just everything about it is uh, broken except for the birth of Jesus. There's uh, three things that I want to point out to you. There's three ways that, and it's just right off the surface of the text. This isn't anything complicated. It's situational brokenness. I didn't know what else to call it besides that. Um, Mary's pregnant. She needs to give birth to this baby and they can't find a place to stay. And... Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, it's, it's not super common, but we have a friend who lives in the area, lives in Troy, uh, uh, pregnant, nine months, uh, in labor, uh, goes to Anderson, is told, and this doesn't reflect on Anderson at all, I hope, is told, uh, you're fine, go back home. And she's like, no, I'm giving birth to this baby, no, no, you're fine, go back home, and uh, her husband and EMTs have to deliver the baby because she's at home when it happens. That's sort of like uh, um, that mad scramble to, you know, to be in the right place at the right time. This is what Mary and Joseph are doing. You know, there's the, uh, we have the word in here in the story. You know, there's no room for them in the end and that conjures up uh, you know, a big building where you knock on the door, you walk into the lobby and they say, there's no, there's no place to stay here. We don't really know what that looks like uh, probably th- there's no hotel there or anything like that. There's not an inn. Um, one speculation, which is pretty solid, is is that um, people in the Middle East at that time, typically in a, in a, a s- sort of semi-rural town like Bethlehem, would uh, live on the top floor of a house, and on the lower floor of the house, they would keep their animals. You wouldn't live on the lower floor. That's where you would store equipment and stuff like that, and your animals You would bring them in 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 bad weather. And so they've gone to somebody's house, which is what you would do in, in, in ancient Jerusalem. You were looking for hospitality. You would just go to somebody's house. There's no room here, but you can stay downstairs in the spot where we keep our animals if you want. That's more likely than not. That's where they're at. Maybe this sort of like nothing's going right. You've all had those. There's a famous story in our family of a trip that Angela and I took to San Francisco one time that nothing went right. It was, uh, we got to the airport, somebody dropped us off, and I had screwed up the time, and we were there eight hours early, with nothing to do. Uh, The the flight didn't take off at nine in the morning, it took off at nine in the evening. We were in the air for two hours, and something happened to the plane, and we had to circle back and land at Kansas City, where we sat in in the closed airport for three hours in the middle of the night. When we got to San Francisco at seven in the morning, our hotel was absolutely horrible. And uh, we scrambled. It was just, it was one of those days. And that's not a big deal, you know. I mean, Angela wasn't pregnant and looking to uh, deliver a child somewhere in San Francisco at the time. But you've all had those moments where situational brokenness is the only way that you can describe that, where where nothing goes right, where your life is a mess, and you feel like, we've all said this, you know, like, my life is a mess. I need to get it together before I, you know, before I move on. And, And one of the things that's going on here in Luke 2 is that God is inserting himself in a story that's controlled by situational brokenness. There's really nothing, everything is going wrong for them, and God still decides to put himself in the middle of the story and act and make things good. He doesn't fix everything. It's not like, it's not like God shows up and, you know, hey, here's uh, Laquinta in. Uh, congratulations, here's a nice place to stay, and here's a, a fully trained uh, OBGYN. It's not like that, but, but, but God puts himself in the middle of broken situations. And whatever your situation is like, God puts himself into the middle of that. There's also political oppression. I think I talked about this a couple, either last year or two years ago. Uh, there's the whole bit at the beginning about, in, the, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I, uh, I, I don't wanna say, I, I, I feel like I say this every year, so I don't wanna talk about it too much. But there's a reason why Luke puts that time stamp in the story. And it's because this is a huge flex on Caesar's part. Caesar's the king of the world, all right? He is, sen- he is putting a census on the people for the purpose of collecting money at some future date. This particular census, we know from Josephus, that this particular census is gonna irritate the people to no end, the one that he mentions here, that eventually there's going to be revolts, and those revolts are gonna lead to bigger revolts. And eventually, in the year 8066, Caesar, it won't be Augustus at that time, he'll long be gone, but Caesar is going to send an army to wipe out Judea and burn down the city of Jerusalem and kill thousands and thousands of Jews, innocent or not. Josephus says that that destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 can be traced back to this event. He doesn't, he doesn't say Luke 2. He says the census that Augustus ran underneath Quirinius. And one of the reasons why Luke puts this in here is because he wants you to know that the background to the birth of the new king, is the reign of the old king. The reign of the old political system, which is determined to crush out any and all challengers, which is why Jesus gets crucified at the end of the story, right? Is because Caesar's not gonna tolerate anybody challenging his authority. This too, it's a massive flex, this too is the story of the Christian church throughout the ages. At one end of the spectrum, when the church is small, Frequently, it gets blamed for everything that goes wrong, whether it's, you know, you hear stories about Nero blaming uh, the Christians for the burning of the city of Rome. Sometimes when the church is larger and, you know, bigger and more powerful, whatever that means, the political system that, that, the political systems that exist, well, you know, in our our country, happens to revolve around two big political parties. They try to co-opt the Christian church, to put the Christian church on their side, to gain more power. And whatever it is, the political system's Hardly ever, hardly ever, it's extremely rare that you find any moment in time when the political systems of this world are willing to bow the knee to Jesus as the one true king of kings. In that context, Jesus inserts himself. And then the third thing, the third thing that's going wrong, of course, is public shame. Um, the, the, Mary is pregnant. She's pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, we know not from Luke, but we know from Matthew, that Joseph has decided to marry her so that she doesn't come underneath shame. But he hasn't consummated the marriage. He's not gonna do that until after Jesus is born. This isn't his baby. It's a baby that's been given uh, to Mary and to us by the power of God. This is a great gift, of course. We talked last week about you, know, you know, honoring Mary, the mother of God and all that. But of course, and, and you guys have heard this before too, from Mary's perspective, it's gotta be at least a headache to be pregnant, but I have to tell everybody, I really, it wasn't Joseph. And, you know, the story that went around in the first century, we know from church history, is that she had an affair with a Roman soldier, whatever. And she has to go around and tell everybody, no, 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 I haven't had sex. Actually, this is the Holy Spirit gave me this baby. And to look, to see the look on people's faces. I mean, you know, what do you do? At some point, you're just like, I'm not going to tell this story anymore. I'm just going to suck it up and live with the shame. None of us have experienced that. But we've all experienced, you know, whoever you are and wherever you're at, you've experienced doing something that you know is right, doing something, if you're a Christian, doing something that you believe to be in God's will and everybody else turning on it and rejecting you and looking at you as though you're wrong. This is kind of a hopeless situation, whether it's the situational brokenness, whether it's the political oppression, whether it's this shame, the public shame that she has to endure. This This is the... The the milieu in which God inserts Himself. So, for all the hopelessness that goes goes along with that, God gives hope through the birth of Jesus, and it could be situational redemption. In spite of everything that goes wrong with their story, God insists on coming to birth. There's this great poem, and I don't remember it. And I should I put it in the bulletin last year. I I should have done it this year. So the 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 gist of the poem is is that. you know, when a baby's about to be born, it just is irresistible. The baby's going to the, the baby's going to come, and a woman's body is going to push. And you can tell her, "Don't push," but a woman's body is going to push. And this sort of the irresistibleness, and in, in the, the, this uh, woman who wrote this poem uh, points out the irresistibleness of God coming into history. God writes himself into the story, and nothing can stop it. Nothing can hold it back. He's going to do it. Maybe they don't have a great place for this to happen. Maybe things aren't going their way. Maybe they've had to ride a donkey for however many miles it is from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Uh, whatever it is, God writes himself into the story. And whatever your situation is, so, so, and, and again, uh, 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 to, to, to bring it around to us, lots of times we equate like our bad situations with God doesn't exist or God's not active or whatever. And sometimes Christians are guilty of the charge of like when things are going well, then like, well, there's God, Right? But God loves to ride himself into situations where you would think he doesn't belong, where he doesn't look like he's active at all. That, those are the situations he loves to ride himself into. It could be the political redemption. Uh, it's funny, verse 11. I, I'll read this to you. Again, this sounds like religious language. I know it does. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That sounds like, oh, Christian language, Savior, Christ the Lord. I, can't, I just want to stress this. And again, I, I did this last year at Christmas Eve. Not like I expect any of you guys to remember that. You probably didn't remember a half hour after the service was over. This is so late at night. But this is actually in the first century. This is political language. There's a a famous, it's it's everywhere in in the literature of the time. But one of the best ways to see it is in this inscription in a city called Priene in in, in Greece. It's called the Priene inscription. Uh, Check it out. And it's it's basically kissing up to Caesar Augustus, this very same uh, king who's in Luke chapter 2 because Caesar Augustus had doled out some money to build them a library and to repair the city streets and whatnot. And so the city of Priene puts up this plaque basically saying Caesar Augustus is the greatest. And it calls him Savior. It calls him Soter. It calls him God. It calls him Lord. It calls the announcement of his birth gospel. It actually uses the word gospel. So all this language that's here in verse 11, I know that we hear it as religious language and, oh, Jesus, come into my heart and save me. It's not religious at all. It's extremely political. Now, of course, religion and politics go hand in hand in the first century. But hear this. You should hear verse 11. Of, of, actually, go back to verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That word gospel, there is a political word. A new king is born. The word gospel means the announcement that there is a new king in town. A new king is born in the city of, for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. That's Caesar word. That's a word that Caesar calls himself who is the Messiah, the Lord. Lord is a word Caesar, Caesar called himself Lord, insisted that everybody, call him, call him Lord. Jesus is saying here, God is saying here, this little tiny baby is the most serious threat to the political forces of this world, which are opposed to righteousness and justice and order. Jesus is the one true political leader. Now, I, I know that we could talk, and we're not gonna do it right now, but we could talk about like, why doesn't it look like that then? And all of Jesus' followers are incredibly screwed up. And it, it looks like the political forces of this world have all the power, and the money has all the power, and the bigwigs have all the power. And I would just say that from our perspective, sometimes it looks like that, but if you look at the scope of history, also if you do it with the eyes of faith, you can see that Jesus is slowly increasing his rule and reign all the time. It doesn't mean that there's not bad Christians and bad politicians and bad non-Christians, but Jesus is accomplishing his rule and reign. We know from the rest of the story that he does this by dying on the cross and swallowing up all the injustice and all the racism and all the, all the lying and all the selfishness in the world into himself, letting it be killed inside of himself and then rising from the dead to establish justice and righteousness and mercy and hope and honesty and goodness. Jesus does this. This is how he rules over all things. So political oppression is, re- dealt with, is dealt with this new king who's being born. And then finally, there's vindication. You know, Mary lives a life of public shame. Joseph too, not to the extent that Mary does, but Joseph kind of aligns himself with this person. He probably comes across as either ridiculously naive or, I don't know, I don't know how would you view somebody who says, yeah, my girlfriend got pregnant, but I really do believe it was by the Holy Spirit, and so we're still together. There's certainly a large amount of public shame in that. It's interesting, in this story, I didn't think about this until I was studying it this time, is the role of the shepherds in this story. Like, what's the point of the shepherds? If they actually don't push the story forward at all. Like, in the narrative, they really don't have a point. What are, I mean, you could take the shepherds out, and everything would still stay the same. Did everybody, did everybody see that? But the shepherds, so here's Mary and Joseph with this secret <laughs> You know, they know what's right, and nobody else in the whole world knows this right. And God gives them a flavor of other people. I'm, I'm going to let other people in on your secret. I'm going to let you experience vindication. And this is one of the things that public praise does. When I come in here, like, so, so, so he, here, me personally, I confess before you guys that I believe that this woman who had never had sex before got pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit that God was born from her, that he was a construction worker who lived 2,000 years ago, who died on a cross, announced the kingdom, healed people, challenged the authorities, claimed that he himself was Lord and not Caesar and not Herod and not the presidents and not the prime ministers, whoever else claims to power. Claims that it wasn't the rich people who were in charge, but it was him. Claimed that he was going to enact a great reversal where the baron would have children and those who had many children would be bereft when the big armies would be destroyed and the weak people would, 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 would uh, reign victorious, that he was going to enact this great reversal and he does it by dying on a cross. So I announce that to you out loud that that's what I believe. And when I, whenever I sing, whenever we come in this morning and we all read a text together, whenever you guys sing a Christmas carol which announces that as, as well, we are doing what the shepherds did. We're joining up with this story saying, yes, Mary, we believe you. We're on your side. We believe that the one that you're giving birth to is going to rescue the whole world. D- does it change the story if you or I decide not to say this? If you and I decide not to believe it? No, it doesn't change the story. But there's something about that praise. The praising God which vindicates the story. Which says, yes, this is real. And we embody it when we, like the shepherds, come and praise him too. We join our voices together when we make it tangible. It's audible. It's audible that our God has become human and is now going to rule and reign over all things. Stand with me and let's pray. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Lord, your Son became flesh with heart and hands to bear our sins to the cross, that our hearts might be pure and our hands clean before you. And As we give thanks tonight for your Son's incarnation, strengthen our faith with the remembrance that he is born to save us by his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, in your mercy. Heavenly Father, by the gift of your Holy Spirit, we testify, all of us tonight, testify together that your Son is the Savior of the world. Continue to pour out your Spirit upon your people. Bless all of us as we proclaim Jesus, who became flesh to save us by dying and rising again. Open our mouths to praise the name of the one born in Bethlehem. Lord, in your mercy. Almighty God, the one born in Bethlehem, is Son of David and Lord of David, to whom every knee shall bow. Look upon all those whom you have placed in authority. Grant that they might govern in the wisdom, justice, and mercy of the Christ who came to save. Lord, in your mercy. Lord God, you love us. You sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Strengthen us to love one another, as you have mercy upon all who are poor and troubled, so perfect your love in us that we, would be, that we would gladly be your instruments of help in time of need. Lord, in your mercy. Almighty Father, you've given your Son, born of Mary, to be the Savior of the world. Send your Spirit, abide with us, that we might confess that Jesus is the Savior of the world and abide in your love until he comes again in glory. For he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. The gentlemen are going to come by and light your candles. Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you.